Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, little boy abducted by aliens. <laughs> so that explains the behavior of your entire adult life, is apparently. <laughs> Take me back. <laughs> so in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1977. And here we are at our season finale. And as we have done in all of our seasons, we presented you, our wonderful listeners, with an audience choice poll. We gave you three choices for this episode of iconic films from 1977, including Saturday Night Fever, Smokey and the Bandit, and our winner, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was a runaway winner with 23 votes, the most votes that any movie has ever gotten in this poll. Josh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good because we got a lot more votes this time than we have in the that's past. True. I feel like it's 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 building, you know? I it's think nice. that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah a good thing. We, we appreciate everyone who contributes. Yeah, and there and, was tons of enthusiasm for this one. Yeah, and I think in, in past seasons, we've had a lot of, maybe in part because there weren't as many votes, but also we've had a lot of close close encounters or close votes. Hey but <laughs> in this in this case, this movie was, was pretty far ahead uh, of the other two. So clearly people interested in close encounters, hopefully we'll have something good to say about it. So <laughs> close encounters <laughs> of the third kind is our episode. And it was a hugely popular movie. I mean, it is an iconic film of 1977. It was a massive box office success. It grossed $306 million worldwide, although I think that includes the re-release in 1980, but still pretty good on a budget of just $19.4 million, which was much higher than the initially planned budget, but still much, much, much smaller than the money that it made. And it was also nominated for eight Academy Awards, uh, although it only won one of them for Best Cinematography. Uh, along with a non-competitive special achievement award for the sound effects. Weirdly enough, it won that award, and yet the best sound regular Oscar, it did not win. So I'm not entirely sure how that works. Mm. Um, but it was also nominated for Best Director for Steven Spielberg, uh, Best Supporting Actress for Melinda Dillon, as well as for the editing, the score, and the art direction, and the visual effects. And really, I feel like in any other year, a lot of those technical awards would have gone to this, but because it was up against Star Wars, it uh, didn't really have a chance for yeah, that Yeah, poor John Williams losing to John Williams for music. Well, I'm yeah, I mean, I meant more like the art direction no, and no, the I sound know, and the visual effects. Uh, and yeah. just to say, Josh, the Special Achievement Award was given to Frank War Warner and, of course, the Cinematography Award to the... Uh, very influential cinematographer for Vilmos Sigismund. Yes, and who was not the only cinematographer on this movie, and uh, other influential, including Laszlo Kovacs, were uh, worked on the cinematography yes. here. But he was the the main cinematographer who we talked about earlier this season, if I'm not mistaken. Correct, L Laszlo Kovacs. Yeah. Did we? No, maybe. I I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Uh, what movie did he work on earlier in the season? That's a good question. I'll look it up. Dave, look it up. All right. Uh, maybe it was 89. Well, I don't remember. We talked about Laszlo. Oh, he shot uh, New York, New York. 
Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. And that was uh, one of the only good elements of that movie. So good for him. <laughs> both of them, both of them helped break all the boundaries as new American modern cinematographers, even though um, it's interesting to call them new American as the movement because they're both Eastern European, but they helped bring that style to America. Yeah. And both of those guys, certainly very, very influential cinematographers um, for decades. So uh, also, I thought it was kind of I didn't I didn't know this and maybe this is common knowledge, but uh, this movie is almost a remake in some ways of a movie that Steven Spielberg made in uh, when he was a teenager called Firelight that he made at age 17 that no longer exists, something that he kind of shot with his friends. Um, but clearly the idea of making a movie about alien visitation and alien abduction is something that Steven Spielberg had been focused on for many, many years. And thanks largely to the success of Jaws, he was able to get the the money and the green light to make this film, which worked out pretty well for him. Yeah, kind of funny because Columbia, this turned out to be the highest grossing film ever for Columbia, but they literally banked their whole company on it because they weren't doing well. So imagine that pressure, like, we'll give you the money, but uh, if you don't do good for us, we're out of business. Right. And, and I think I feel like we've had stories like that. Uh, where it goes the opposite way uh, and, you know, the studio banks everything on a movie and it turns out to be a flop and then we end up talking about it as a as a flop or as a cult classic or something because it was a failure. But clearly, uh, banking on Steven Spielberg and banking on Close Encounters was a good move for Columbia Pictures, which does still exist. So that, uh, that worked out well. Way, way to go, uh, Columbia Pictures. Yes. Uh, critics mostly were into this movie, although a lot of the reviews that I found were were uh, were overall positive, but were a little mixed. Um, but it was it was well reviewed right out of the gate. In addition to, of course, becoming a beloved classic over time, um, Charles Champlin in the Los Angeles Times said, "Close Encounters proves to be a magic act with dramatic interludes." The interludes range downward from so-so. The movie is oddly like Jaws in that way. But the magic is so thrilling that nothing else matters much. The special effects conceived by Spielberg and executed by Douglas Trumbull and a staff that seems to number in the hundreds are dazzling and wondrous. That's not surprising. The surprise is that Close Encounters is so well leavened with humor. The Spielberg of Jaws continues to be a director and now a writer of effects rather than characters or relationships. When the script lets Trumbull and his associate Merlins and a platoon of the world's best cinematographers strut their stuff and the Superdome-sized saucers wheel and hover and turn, it is zowie time at the Bijou. <laughs> and really, I mainly just wanted to say the word zowie. Um, zowie time at the Bijou. Like, I can only see a man wearing an obnoxiously loud suit saying that just to get even more attention on himself. Yeah, I will say that completely unrelated to this movie, I recently watched a documentary in which Charles Champlin appears, and he definitely looks like a guy who would say that sort of thing. All right, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's interesting that, and this comes up in multiple reviews, not that the special effects in this movie aren't amazing, because they are, and I think they hold up really well, um, but the idea that this movie is not character driven, which I think is crazy. And to me watching this movie now, it seems almost excessively character driven in that there's not a lot of action or big incident until that third act. And it's really so much about 
Richard Dreyfuss's character and his sort of mental breakdown and his relationship with his family. So to argue that this isn't a character-driven movie, I think is really strange. Yeah, but I'm going to disagree a little because there are, you know, his first encounter and then kind of uh, the UFO chasing perhaps or waiting for it on the highway. So there are those action moments, but they definitely build to like one of the best third acts ever. So I agree with you. It is character-driven. And um, this guy keeps uh, Charles Champlin, not Charles Chaplin. Right. He keeps talking about the uh, special effects team, Josh. And you mentioned Douglas Trumbull. Um, the other name we want to mention there is Carlo Rambaldi, who kind of designed the aliens, and Joe Alves, who's um, Spielberg's uh, production designer for many years, I think. Yeah, and Douglas Trumbull and Carlo Rambaldi both are like majorly influential Legend, yeah. figures in the world of special effects. Arthur Knight in The Hollywood Reporter said, it is also to Spielberg's credit, however, that despite all of this visual opulence, his actors are never dwarfed. Richard Dreyfuss is outstanding as a man becoming fiendishly obsessed by his need to know and understand what he has seen. And Melinda Dillon is no less effective as the distraught mother who joins him on his trek to the West. And then he talks about the greatness of the, the technical uh, achievement and says later, Coupled with Vilma Sigmund's crisply detailed camera work, the result is a film of incredible power and intensity. It is also and ultimately reassuring. Those things out there from outer space, Spielberg tells us, mean us no harm. They're really friendly creatures once you get to know them. One of the virtues of Close Encounters is that it makes us want to know more. And I think that's a really important element of this movie is that this is not an alien attack movie or an alien invasion movie. This is about friendly aliens. And that's something that we didn't really see. And you don't see the aliens until the end, whereas in a lot of other films, you see them kind of, you know, midway through, I'd say, if not earlier. You know, you had mentioned that kind of re-release in 1980 that they did where you yeah. see the inside of the spaceship. Did you watch that scene? Have you ever seen that scene? I don't think I was trying to remember watching watching this movie this time. I watched the the original cut, um, and I was trying to remember which version I had seen when I first watched it, and I couldn't recall. So I may have seen those scenes, but I did not watch them this time. I had never seen that. I've only seen the original version, but I did uh, watch on YouTube the the scene of the inside of the spaceship, which again incredibly impressive. But I think. Really good decision by Spielberg to leave it out to make you kind of just wonder more than no. Right. I think, I mean, and this is something Spielberg learned from making Jaws, is that leaving this kind of stuff off screen to the imagination is often more effective. And I know that in there, there's there's three different versions of this movie. And in the, the director's cut that came out in 1998, Spielberg took those scenes back out. Yeah. The, uh, the mothership uh, interior scenes. And that that seemed to be the way that he wanted to approach it. Finally, A.D. Murphy in Variety was, was probably the most critical of the reviews that I found. He said, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is a daring film concept which in its special and technical effects has been superbly realized. Steven Spielberg's film climaxes in its final 35 minutes with an almost ethereal confrontation with life forms from another world. The first 100 minutes, however, are somewhat redundant in exposition and irritating in tone. But there's no denying that the climax is an absolute stunner, literate in plotting, dazzling in execution, and almost reverent in tone. 
At the very least, the denouement is light years ahead of the climactic nonsense of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yet in terms of real empathy with enduring human nature as it is, warts and all, Close Encounters lacks the warmth and humanity of George Lucas's Star Wars. So two things. One, I love the dig at 2001, which I am not a fan of. And two, I think this is perhaps the only time that George Lucas's warmth and humanity has been favorably <laughs> compared to something else. I don't know why you have to compare it to 2001, though. It's a totally different vehicle, idea, movie. Obviously, I can see the comparison to Star Wars, especially because it came out in the same uh, year. But like, it's a different it's a different vehicle, a different beast. I don't know, man. I don't. I didn't get that. I think, like you said, it is character driven, and that that you get different amounts of warmth from different characters. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the comparison to two thousand one. I mean, one thing, of course, is that Douglas Trumbull worked on both of these movies and is developed important special effects techniques by working on 2001. So that's a direct connection there. Sure. And and maybe just at the time in 1977, 2001 was maybe considered the gold standard for like a serious science fiction movie. But I I, I agree. And I think, again, the idea of, of referring to George Lucas's work as containing the most warmth in humanity is kind of laughable. Um, and not that Star Wars doesn't. I mean, maybe, you know, you could argue that Star Wars is is the you know the most humanistic of of George Lucas's work but i think this movie is very focused on that and the idea of the aliens again the idea of them being friendly the idea of them not being dangerous is sort of a tribute to the human spirit in a way that that we're we're good enough to warrant that kind of treatment from from an alien species and i think that's part of what this movie is trying to convey and it focuses so much to maybe its detriment, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as this review is kind of concerned, but focuses so much on Richard Dreyfuss's character and his personal journey that it, it absolutely is, is full of humanity. You know, um, going back to 2001, I think you could see a comparison between the Devil's Tower sequence and kind of in 2001, those uh, giant columns sequence. But I am going to disagree with you on... George Lucas's most the most humanity being shown in Star Wars. I'd say American Graffiti had that. Um, well, right. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I'm thinking of kind of later as as he goes on with Star Wars, but you're right. Sure. And I mean, yeah, this is Richard Dreyfuss's movie as much as it is the special effects or anything else. So although man, that little boy, he's awesome in this movie. So Carrie, uh, Carrie mean, Guffey, is that his name? Yeah, and I don't know if you even really like, is that even really acting? That kid is so little that sometimes, I mean, it's really just like Spielberg's ability to get him to kind of react to things off screen um, is is how you direct actors who are that young. Yes, I think. yes, Spielberg's an expert, but this brings back one of the themes of the show, Josh hates children and child actors. <laughs> I was not even saying anything negative about the kid. I'm saying it's such you, a, it's, it's You natural. said you can't even call it acting. Josh. Well, right, because it's so natural. It's so real. I think that's a compliment, is oh, it not? I guess you um, turned me on. Yeah. That one. So, well, so Jason, as you mentioned, you'd seen this movie before. Had you seen it? I mean, this is such a beloved movie. Had you seen this multiple times or just one? I only watched it once. I watched it in college. I took a major figures class, Spielberg and Scorsese, and that's where I saw it. And Josh, I got to tell you, liked it more this time. All right. Yeah. I had never, uh, I mean, not, a, I had seen it before, but I didn't see it. 
you know, when I was younger, I saw it for the first time a few years ago as one of these, you know, classic movies that I had not gotten to and I really ought to watch. And I think it was interesting because watching it that first time, I had an experience that I think is common when watching big classic movies where you're so familiar with so many of the scenes and the lines already before seeing them, where it's a bit underwhelming. And I thought maybe coming back to it another time, and I've had this experience too, where I see a classic movie that way for the first time and it's a bit of a disappointment. And then coming back the second time, I can appreciate it better. And I thought I might have that experience, but I didn't. I don't love this movie. Okay. Dave? But it's it's something I can admire. So yeah, Dave, have you had you seen this? I saw this the 4K re-release a few years back mm-hmm. in the theater. Uh-huh. And uh, so that was the last time and probably the first time I had ever seen it. And that will factor into how much I liked it. I guess we'll get into that more later, though. All right. Was that that 4K re-release? Was that the director's cut? Uh, that I'm pretty sure it was the regular version. The original. The theater. Yeah. Okay. Any other? I mean, I feel like we could. This is another movie like Star Wars that we could get into stories for days. But any other background things you want to? Yeah, you're right, Jason? Josh. You mentioned you know up for a ton of awards. It broke all types of box office records. At one point, it had the highest. Uh, one week record of all time on both Ebert and Siskel's top 10 list of the year. Siskel had it at four. Ebert had it at six for 1977. So yeah, we uh, AFI 100 movies, number 64. You could go on and on. You could. I mean, this is, again, you know, as as designed for this episode in our poll, this is an iconic movie and it remains so to this day. I feel like people love this movie just as much now, if not more than when it first came out. So certainly, um, I mean, it's kind of amazing that this and Star Wars came out in the same year and are two of the most beloved and influential sci-fi movies ever made. I know, and you know, we know they're both friends and they traded points on the back end on these movies. I wonder how much each one knew about the other project. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like didn't they, or Spielberg at least, didn't he visit the set of Star Wars? Didn't we talk about that at, at one point in our Star Wars episode? Right. Well, I mean, even in the writing process, right? Well, because, you know, we know that this had a number of writers on it, even though Spielberg gets sole credit. But this was kind of a known, both of these were known quantities before they were made or released or anything. So I wonder even just kind of in the writing process, how much these guys talk to each other about the projects. Yeah, it's entirely, I mean, you would expect, like you said, they're friends and they're both kind of coming up in Hollywood in the same, at the same time, I would imagine they must have at least traded back and forth. But uh, we'll have to ask them when we have a special bonus episode featuring interviews with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Confirmed. (laughs) Yes. On the Patreon. Right. (laughs) So we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we're talking about our audience choice poll winner, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And obviously people love this movie. They wanted to hear about it. Even now, it's beloved. And like I kind of alluded to earlier, I don't love it. I want to love it. I feel like it's the kind of movie I should and would love. And I could admire a lot about it, but I just can't quite get into this movie. But Jason, I think you like it more than I It's so funny. We almost have opposite reactions because I feel like this is a movie I might look at and did the first time and be like, yeah, I I get it. I admire it. It's 
it's really technically sound, this and that. But this time, I really unexpectedly just was with it from the beginning. I could see it like how much fun it would be to see on a big screen. I thought the balance between character movement and big, you know, effects worked really well. And like I said, that I was thinking about it, like that whole almost last hour is Devil's Tower, you know, and the main characters kind of ascending up to it. And that last half hour, which Spielberg said editing was uh, act three was the toughest thing he ever did in his life. Like it's just that one set piece and it's just so effective. So I don't know. It's interesting because I think I would think we would have opposite reactions than we had, Josh. Right. I mean, I definitely in general am sort of more the sci-fi fan than you are, but I, I don't know. I mean, and and some of the things that, that kind of got to me in this the movie are things that, I mean, I would like theoretically in other movies. I mean, this movie is incredibly slow, I think. And it spends so much time building up the Richard Dreyfus character um, and just the, the obsession that he has with finding what turns out to be Devil's Tower. And I just, if it felt very repetitive to me. I wasn't really, I mean, Dreyfus's performance is good, but I don't like that guy as a character. I mean, and maybe that's part of the point is that he becomes so obsessed or that he's forced to, I mean, that the aliens essentially ruin his life by planting this in his brain. But at the same time, I just didn't really find him sympathetic in that he clearly has choices to make and he alienates his family and eventually abandons them at the end of the movie, which I thought was extremely, it was just terrible. Like, and it's, it's this weird parallel, like Melinda Dillon's character, her whole story is she wants her son back. She's, she's racked with, with, she's traumatized by the disappearance of her son and she'll do anything to get him back, which she succeeds at the end. And it's nice. They have this nice reunion and you're happy for them. And, and, and Richard Dreyfuss, Roy's story is the opposite where he just, his, he just abandons, he's got three kids yeah. and he just kind of like lets them go and just leaves the fucking planet and, and doesn't even think about it. I, There's not even a moment in the movie where they say, Hey Roy, we want you to go on the spaceship. And he's like, I don't know. I have to leave my kids behind. He doesn't even think about it. No, that's definitely a weakness. And Spielberg, you know, has said he made this before he had kids of his own. And uh, after having kids, he would have made a different choice if he had made this movie. But that is definitely a like a red flag, should we say there? Or it's <laughs> like, hey, you're just going to leave like and not. And it's not just that he leaves, but he's like asking to go also, you know? Right, like, right. And right. that's his whole character arc is that he wants to go with the aliens and that you know, it's it, you may start out and I think he's sort of sympathetic where it's like he didn't ask for this. And he even says that in the scene where they're confronting the government people. He's like, I didn't ask to see this. And he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But he clearly embraces it at a certain point. And I think that makes him less uh, of a character that you can sympathize with or root for. And so, yeah, I just found him kind of irritating at times. And maybe as we established in the Goodbye Girl episode, maybe I just find Richard Dreyfus irritating, but I felt like I couldn't get on board with his character. And this movie is really all about his character. Well, sir, I beg to differ. <laughs> I just, you know, I was trying to give you 
any opening to do that Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> I held off for long enough, but I can take no more of your insults, my good man. You shall leave my filmography alone. Everything from Close Encounters to Krippendorf's Tribe has been done immaculately, sir. Oh, man. I'm well glad done. we got Krippendorf's Tribe yeah. in there. Well done. So, but, but Jason, I mean, what do you think of his performance and what do you think of that? I mean, his performance is very good. Um, I, one of the things I found interesting reading about was like, you know, there was this was like one of the first movies to attempt to do CGI and it didn't work, but a lot of the time the effects weren't ready, ready. So they were acting against nothing. It was just like, you know, okay, now you, you know, you're seeing this and whatnot. And then Dreyfus was upset when he saw when the effects were in, cause he thought he would have reacted a different way to a lot of them. Um, but I thought his performance was fine. I thought she was very good. I had no problem with that uh, at all. I did. I, I can understand the problems with the character, but I don't think he did a bad job portraying the character. No, I don't think he did a bad job portraying the character. I guess maybe I just find him inherently kind of irritating and that added to my existing irritation with the character, which probably would have happened no matter who played the character. But I think because so much of the movie, again, especially the whole middle of the movie, once we get the basic setup, and we have sort of multiple prologue scenes. You have that early scene in the in the desert in Mexico and the scene in India where we're establishing sort of the alien presence. The middle of the movie is really almost all about Roy and his growing obsession and a little bit about Melinda Dillon's character and, you know, and, and the, the kid, but far more about Roy. I felt like it was the movie kind of comes close to losing me at that point before it gets to that final act. And even honestly, the final act, I think as much as it's really majestic and impressive, especially in the in the effects, which hold up really, really well, I, it's so goddamn slow. And I was like, get to the freaking aliens already. Well, that That's the pace that he said for the whole movie, like you said. Um, I would say, Josh, you know, to bring up some of those sequences you mentioned, like I didn't love the opening sequence in the desert in Mexico at all. Um, but I really love the sequence in India. That was a really powerful one where they're all kind of chanting that five tone kind of melodic sequence. I thought that was great. So you're right. Look, this is what it is. But um, I really liked when I liked his first encounter where he gets kind of lifted, I guess, by the aliens. Um, I thought that was done well. And I really loved when they're all just kind of sitting out on the highway waiting for the UFOs to pass, and they do. I thought that was really awesome. Yeah, those are good scenes. Those are good scenes. Um, and I agree that that scene in India, and there's a great shot where they're yelling, where is the sound coming from? And you see just the hands of all the Indians pointing like up, pointing yeah. up. Yeah, that's an awesome shot. And that's one of the, you know, when, when you know Spielberg's brilliance is staging something like that. Yeah, that opening sequence, I forgot the fact that it takes place in that like heavy wind and you can barely hear what the characters say and they're yelling at each other the whole time. And I'm sure that was an artistic choice, but I don't entirely know why. Yeah. And also you have, you know, the Lacombe and Laughlin characters um, and Lacombe barely speaks any English, um, which I know that character is based on a real person, but um, you know, and here played by Francois Truffaut and but but between what you're saying, the difficulty of hearing and also we're translating conversations back and forth, it's kind of off to a slow and um, a little murky, a little confusing start to me. 
Right, and the characters are essentially repeating themselves, even though maybe you in the audience as a viewer don't understand when Truffaut is speaking French and we have to get Bob Balaban to translate it or he's translating between, but it means essentially all of the lines get said multiple right. times so instead of a, a thing where maybe in another movie we would just subtitle it and assume that they understood each other um, or we would have the French character just speak English, which he does occasionally, but he obviously isn't meant to know a lot of English words. And he did it, so, and Truffaut didn't at the time. So. Right, right, and and like and like you said also, it's based on a real French scientist, and so I'm sure yeah. having him be French was important, but it, it does slow things down. It's another thing that kind of makes everything take a little longer, because they have to repeat themselves all the yeah, time. Yeah, and that, by the way, I found that guy's name, it's Jacques Vallée, or uh, Vallée, depending. The real guy? Yeah, and a yeah. uh, very famous uh, UFOologist who also, um, was there at the beginning of the internet, like pre-internet, he was kind of building stuff like that. So I, I think cool. so. I understand that. Um, yeah, I, it's interesting. You almost wonder like, why why give him three kids if he's gonna leave them? That That's the big thing. Like, cause you have her with the son, right? And that's fine. But did you need, did you need Richard Dreyfuss's character to have any kids? I don't think you did. Right. I mean, I can see him wanting to establish the way that it's really driving him crazy and you need to maybe have people around him to kind of react to that. It didn't have to be kids. They could have lived with a parent or, you know. Right. Or it could have just been the wife. It could have just been Terry Gar. I think that would have worked too. I mean, and in, in, in a way also, it emphasizes how much he's leaving behind when he goes with the aliens and it shows you how dedicated he is to going with them. But I think it just doesn't give that enough weight. And I think probably, yeah, it would have worked better maybe if it was just him and the wife and you can still get the sense of him going a little crazy and driving her away and you don't need to have the full family there. Yeah, so. I mean, one big set piece that I think like, you know, we know the mashed potato scene, very famous. And of course we've covered UHF where they kind of- Yes, <laughs> um, yes. But he does, and then he goes to the point where he's building- the huge replica in his living room and he's getting like, he's stealing chicken wire from next door and he's like breaking his windows, throwing stuff in. And I thought that was a little much because it's like uh, one, I don't know why he needed to build it in his living room. And two, even if he did, he didn't really have to break his stuff. Like that just seemed like a crazy maneuver, which of course he's already gotten, you know, a little wacky here, but um, I could see at that point where, you as a watcher would be like, all right, dude, like, let's move on. Right. And I think they they show that he's clearly it's not that he's so possessed by the aliens that he doesn't understand what he's doing. He clearly has his faculties still about him. So he knows what he's doing. He knows how inconsiderate he's being. He knows how, you know, he's pushing people away. So that to me is where I kind of lose a lot of sympathy for him as a character. I will say that sequence, though, was something that was taken out, I believe, in the 1980 version, although I think maybe at least partially added back in, in the 1998 director's cut. So that was something that maybe even Spielberg was a little unsure about. Now, Josh, you're saying you had, you just don't like Richard Dreyfuss, but you didn't have a problem with his performance, correct? Is that what you're saying? Right. No, 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 I don't. I mean, I guess maybe just his presence for some reason is, is irritating to me, but I don't necessarily think he's a bad actor. And I think a lot of the problem really is in the way that the character is written and, and directed and even with another performer. And I know if, you know, I don't know if you're going to mention, but there were quite a few other yeah. actors that were up for this part and Dreyfuss lobbied for it. He spent 
a lot of the time when he was working with Spielberg on Jaws, trying to convince Spielberg to cast him in this role right. um, when he wasn't initially up for it. So, But I do think even any of those other actors, and some of them I think would have been really wrong for it, I think the character itself is is, is just what loses. Well, me. I mean, and these are the familiar names that probably were up for every leading role in the 70s, right? Steve McQueen was the first choice, and he turned it down because he couldn't cry on cue is what I read, but... Yeah, yeah, that's weird. Um, Dustin Hoffman would have been great. He's always, I think that would have yeah. been great. Our friend Al Pacino, back again. <laughs> is that Cajun Al Pacino? Is that what that is? Pacino comes and goes, you know. So. Yeah. Uh, Gene Hackman would have been interesting to me. I think, um, I don't know, he's so good in everything. It's tough to see him be bad. But maybe, um, like you said, maybe we need a little more levity than what Hackman would bring. And then uh, I like Jack Nicholson turned it down because he thought no matter who the actor was, the special effects would, uh, you know, kind of overtake the acting. And I, I like that in a movie star who says he needs to be the guy no matter what. So, you know, right. And he was probably correct about that. I mean, as much as people like Richard Dreyfuss in this movie, this is really a movie about the special effects, and that's what people remember most about it. And Nicholson, I think, would have been way wrong, because you try to imagine this character as like Jack Torrance from The Shining or something, which is well, where he would have this is ended up going that. with it. I think, you know, this would have been cool Jack 60s and 70s, but, you know, kind of like... Um, yeah, getting getting some type of uh, mental obsession. I think, look, any of them would have been interesting, but I thought Dreyfus did the job, and you know we know Melinda Dillon did a great job. And um, even though you don't want to give our friend Carrie Guffey any credit, he was really fun. He was really good. So yeah, and again, I don't think I'm not giving him credit. I just think it's a different kind of acting when you're that small a child. Yeah, and that I'm giving I'm giving Spielberg credit because it's tough to get a good performance ah. out of a kid that young. One thing I was thinking when watching this is like, I don't think there's a director who's better at directing children than Spielberg, you know? Right. And this was probably, I don't know if this was the first movie of his with a major kid role, but certainly he went on to do iconic kid performances. I mean, E.T. is the one we think of the most with, yeah. with Drew, Bar Drew Barrymore and Henry Thomas. But you're right. I mean, and I think Spielberg himself is known for having that almost childlike sense of wonder. And this is a movie, again, based on an idea that Spielberg had when he himself was a child. Right. And something that he held onto from his childhood and brought into his filmmaking career as an adult. So I think I think you're right that that there's a real connection there between yeah. Spielberg and, and, and there were kids in Jaws, but like we don't think of them as like major players, you know, other than no, the boy no. who gets eaten. So Josh, yeah, like you had mentioned, Spielberg's parents took him to like a meteor shower or something. They went out to a field in the great state of New Jersey and watched the <laughs> meteor shower, and that's kind of where this idea came from. And he had just been kicking it around his whole you know, professional career, it's, it seems like, you know. So Ace Eli and, uh, and Rogers of the, of the Skies was something. And, you know, like you said, Firelight. And it's just always been there, it seems like. Uh, you know, they went through a number of names, experiences, Watch the Skies, Kingdom Come. So, yeah, this, this was one that he was going to make. Right. And I, I think that was the thing, is that Jaws was so huge that he got the chance. And we see this a lot where a filmmaker has a big hit. And we talked about this like with Robert Altman and a studio is now willing to give them money to do their own personal vision. And this is 
that's the thing that he seized on. Yeah. When given the chance, this is what he wants. I wish that we would see more of that today, Josh. Yes. Well, but although also, as you said, I mean, it worked out well this time, but that meant that Columbia kind of staked almost their entire studio on Steven Spielberg's personal childhood dream. Yeah. And that doesn't always work out. No, but like if that's the case, the studio was already in trouble if they have to bank the whole future on one movie, you know? Well, true, but also this movie ended up costing a lot more than Spielberg initially pitched it as. And, you know, once they're in it, they're going to finish it. And so they ended up giving him all this extra money that was far beyond his initial budget. So, you know, if it had stuck to its initial budget, maybe it wouldn't have, the, the whole studio wouldn't have been riding on it. Um, but again, it obviously worked out. And, and even now, you know, 40 plus years later, if Spielberg says, I have a dream, you know, uh, any studio is going to give him the money. I wonder now. I think it's a little tougher. I mean, as we saw with Scorsese and what it took for him to get the Irishman made, you know, so I do think it's a little tougher. Yeah, it is. But I mean, the point is like it was made. Maybe maybe he had to go to Netflix or he has to go to Apple or whatever. But people who have those deep pockets, they're going to give that money to Martin Scorsese. They're going to give that money to Steven Spielberg and maybe more than Scorsese. I mean, Spielberg can still create these big mainstream hits out of what he personally wants. I mean, it seems like he's kind of gone away from those personal visions. And what he does is he's interested in, he's going to adapt something or remake something or whatever. And that's more what he's into rather than an original idea. But I still think if Steven Spielberg, if you take a meeting as a studio executive with Steven Spielberg, and he says, I'm passionate about making this happen, you're going to be willing to give him the money. All right, I'll remember that in our next meeting, me and Spielberg. You do that, yeah. When you, when you have when you have hundreds of millions of dollars to potentially spend on a movie, listen to Steven Spielberg. Maybe in our special podcast episode where we interview him <laughs> with, with George Lucas together. So. Right, exactly. Right. Both of them. You know, we can we can talk about what ideas. Of course, we know Dave hates Spielberg and Lucas because uh, in about what was it, 2013, the two of them at a symposium said that. The idea of the movie theater is dying, and then soon movie theaters will just be places where you go for $50 events, and you will be watching most of your movies at home. And everyone thought they were crazy, and look at us now. Uh, I, I That doesn't mean I hate them th that they could see the future. I mean, you, you just know, hate that it, they were right about it? Yeah. Well, I mean, but on the other hand, Spielberg is always making movies for theaters. Right. And in, in fact, Spielberg's latest film, which is his remake of West Side Story, just had its release date pushed back a whole year so that it can open in theaters. Sure. So I think mm -hmm. that's something that he, I mean, Lucas doesn't really make movies anymore, but it's something that Spielberg at least is still very dedicated to is making movies that open in theaters and are that big kind of experience. I like that guy. Which guy? Spielberg for oh. wanting to put his movies in theaters. Yeah, they, they do. They they care about movies and the art of film and the way that you watch it in the theater and um, all that fun stuff. So Yes, so much fun stuff. Yeah, well, so yeah, he's got West Side Story and, uh, you know, a bunch of other things coming up, it looks like. Um, but that's for later, I suppose, Josh. Any thoughts on uh, Lacombe, Mr. Francois Truffaut? Yeah, I mean, for someone who's not really an actor, Truffaut, this was his only role that he played in a movie that he didn't direct and his only role in an English language movie. I mean, as you pointed out, he doesn't even really speak English. Um, but for someone who's not really an actor, I thought he did a good job. And I know there were certain French actors who are actors primarily who were up for this role and, and it ended up going to Truffaut. But uh, I think he's good. I mean, he's meant to be this sort of inscrutable figure, I think be partially because 
he's French and most of the other characters don't understand what he's saying. And it's always filtered through Bob Balaban's character, through the interpreter, that he's sort of removed. He's almost an alien presence in a way. But I think it works that way. So I, I think Truffaut is fine. Did you like his performance? I didn't dislike him. And of course, we love Bob Balaban because of Waiting for Guffman here on Awesome Movie Year. But And many reasons. Bob Balaban is Yeah, but mm-hmm. I do think it was a little unclear as to why he had access to literally everything. You know, he's like, he's running the whole show up at Devil's Tower. And, you know, he's the one who, when these kind of people who are trying to get there, get whatever debriefed or sent back he's the one who's kind of in charge of that and i'm like he just has security clearance beyond anyone and, I, and i'm like he feels like i don't know exactly what he does you know he's just a yeah. guy you know i mean they never specifically define it but he's clearly like the world's foremost expert on this and that's why once stuff starts happening they bring him in and he they defer to him because he clearly knows more than everyone else knows so right i was okay with that as as he's almost like this mysterious unofficial figure um, I kind of like that they kept him that way. And there's never a scene where some, you know, army general is like, oh, meet this guy. He's a blah, blah, blah. And they just tell you who he is because we don't need to know that. I think that was fine. Sure. Um, one name I read about was J. Allen Hynek, who I didn't know, who was a, a UFOologist. He's a very big UFOologist. And he's the guy at the end where you're watching the reactions and you just see a dude with a pipe, like going like, all right, you know, and you're like, why are you cutting to this guy who we've never seen before? But apparently the reason was because that was him. So, you know, that could have helped inspire the character as well. Right. Well, and as you mentioned, there's a, a real French uh, scientist who was partially, uh, yeah, Faye. partially so. inspired. Yeah. Um, so no, I'm fine with that. I mean, I think, Right, performance-wise, and we mentioned Melinda Dillon, who was nominated for an Oscar for this, and she's good. She doesn't have as much of a character arc as Richard Dreyfuss does, but you really get the sense of her her desperation wanting to find her child, which I think is maybe a more sympathetic motivation <laughs> than Roy's. And Bob Balaban is fun. I mean, he's largely just translating, but I think you get the sense of his... He, he he feels sort of put upon at a certain point um, that he's been drafted into this role. And there's there's one point where he he makes the key observation about these numbers being longitudes right. and latitudes. And he almost bitterly is like, before I was hired to speak French, I actually knew about stuff. He's a cartographer, right? So. Right. So I kind of like that moment for him as a character, well, even though it's, it's small. Two things I want to bring up, Josh. We kind of talked about the effects, but like, I wish we had more of this stuff where they're moving away from CGI and doing these kind of on-screen effects again, because this, like you said, they hold up excellently here and they're just so impressive. You know, it would be really cool to see um, that type of creativity happen again in filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, I agree, but also at the same time, you said that that initially they were trying to do some CGI here and it didn't work out. And so they fell back on the practical effects. But I mean, Spielberg is someone who's always pushing that forward. Spielberg was one of the first people to extensively use CGI, like in Jurassic Park. And so I think it's great that these effects hold up well. And I agree that I wish there was more of that. But I think it's sort of accidental that they relied on that mainly here and that Spielberg as a filmmaker would have been happy to push things as far forward as possible. And I think is in a way it's like George Lucas when we talked about Star Wars, that those practical effects yeah. hold up really well. But Lucas was happy and eager 
to abandon those for something more state of the art as soon as he had the chance to. So, I mean, I think that's kind of, at least Spielberg hasn't tinkered with the effects in this movie. I mean, even when there were new cuts, they never went back and redid the effects, which is good, but I don't know how much credit we can give him because I think he's absolutely eager to move forward technologically. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it was a mistake for him not to use real dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. But well, but I mean, in Jurassic Park has a mix of, of CGI and animatronics, which is, you know, yeah. the more practical effects. Um, and I think Jurassic Park, I mean, even the CGI in Jurassic Park holds up incredibly well and far better than CGI in movies that came out much later. Um, but that's a whole separate. All right, fair, fair, Josh. The last thing, I mean, I kind of mentioned it early, but like, John Williams, another another Grand Slam, right? Like, this is one of the most mm -hmm. iconic uh, musical moments in film history, and it's just five tones, doo -doo 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 -doo, whatever. You know, I'm not good at music, Josh, but uh, really, no, just not. like they said, he went through hundreds of five tone patterns, and this was the one he and Spielberg both both chosen. Um, they they chose the right one. Yeah, quite a year for John Williams, too, as we mentioned. I mean, between this and Star Wars, like, that is an amazing, amazing achievement for that guy. He was so. definitely the Richard Dreyfus of film music 1977. <laughs> so true. So true. But, I mean, I think people think of Star Wars, they remember the Star Wars themes more. Those are more iconic. But the music in this movie is is also fantastic. Well, not just that, and essential true. to the plot. Yes, that is true. That is true. Just that simple five-tone thing is that if you if you can't, sort of buy into that, then the whole climax of the movie doesn't work. So uh, that is very important. Should we rate this movie out of five tones? Speaking of. <laughs> very nice. Josh, way to go, buddy. So thank you. I will give it four tones. So it gets doo 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 for me. So four <laughs> out of five tones. I'm not going to try to hum the tones, but I'm going to give it three out of five. Like I said, I, I want to like it more. I feel like I should like it more, but I I just, I admire it more than I like it. We have both rated it above what we rated Star Wars this year. <laughs> uh, no, I think I rated Star Wars higher. I think I rated Star Wars three and a half. Oh, well, I like this better. No, that and that's totally fair. I think there's a, you are in very good company on that. So Dave, uh, do you want to give this a rating out of tones? Sure, I'm gonna give it three tones and just wanted to say, I think if we were doing this after I walked out of the theater of that re-release, it might've been three and a half or four. I think this is a movie that really works better in the theater than it does at home. And that that's kind of my biggest takeaway from this thing is that this is really one of those movies. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I, Jason, neither of us have seen it in the theater. No, but I did see it in a quote unquote theater, not a movie theater, but you know, when you're in like, a classroom and they have like a movie screen to play it on. So yeah, it's funny because I liked it better this time, but um, no, that's cool, man. That's cool. I yeah, it. I could see that being being sort of that enveloping experience might yeah. uh, might help. So we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this season finale of our 1977 season. We're talking about the audience choice poll winner, Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I mean, I think by as evidenced by the fact that it did win this poll, obviously part of the legacy is just that this movie remains really beloved and it remains really popular. And it means a lot to people, I think, who saw it in their youth. 
Yeah, and of course, winning this poll is the most prestigious honor one can absolutely absolutely i mean really we should just end there you know the legacy of this movie is winning the awesome movie year poll ray Ray bradbury called it the greatest sci-fi film ever made john renoir compared spielberg to jules verne and george millier no millier my french is not good millier's no i knew it was i knew i said it wrong the first time at least as uh with his storytelling so yeah, I mean, it's beloved. It kind of helped push forward. And I think it probably kind of helped push him towards E.T. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I was looking at, you know, Spielberg revisiting the topic of aliens. And and E.T., I think, has a similar tone to this movie where the alien is friendly. And it's really about um, aliens coming to Earth and, and wanting to connect with us. And, of course, in that movie, the government is is more hostile versus it in this movie. Um, but it's still generally the treatment of aliens in E.T. I think is similar. Whereas the next movie that he made about aliens was War of the Worlds in 2005, which is obviously a very different perspective. And that is sort of what we more expect. It's the alien invasion story. It's the alien attack story. Um, you know, something like Independence Day that we talked about in our season in 1996. And I think Spielberg's War of the Worlds is good, but the approach to aliens in this movie and E.T. I think is a more unique perspective than in War of the Worlds. And, you know, he's had a very up and down last decade, I'd say, as a filmmaker, you know, hits and misses. So we'll see where he goes from here. We will. Well, where he will goes next is, as we mentioned, is, is West Side Story which is his next film that comes out now at the end of 2021. Yeah, which was Um, a crazy, when you first heard that he was remaking West Side Story, I just thought it was a crazy idea that that would even be the thing. It does still seem weird to me that of all the things that he could do, and like we said, I think he still has probably quite a bit of freedom to do what he wants, that that is what he decided to do. But we haven't seen it yet, so maybe it'll turn out to be amazing. Yeah, I want to give Spielberg a little credit because I'm looking through the filmography right now, and we do think of him as like this big blockbuster, you know, Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park. But he's really quite varied as a filmmaker, as a director, you know, everything from The Color Purple and Empire of the Sun through some of the stuff, Schindler's List, obviously. And then in the the last, you know, 20 years or 22 years from Saving Private Ryan on, you know, really some interesting stuff here. Yeah, and I think he's one of those filmmakers who's used that blockbuster success to allow himself the opportunity to make those serious historical films, which is clearly something that interests him. And I would imagine that is something he'll try to come back to at a certain point. Um, do you have a favorite Spielberg movie? I'm going to say, maybe not my favorite, but I'm going to say the hidden gem of the Spielberg, if there is such a thing, because all his movies are so well known. I really, really like Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, that is a fun one. I think my favorite Spielberg movie is probably actually Jurassic Park. I just think that is like the perfect like popcorn blockbuster with the sense of wonder and the kind of thing that he does well. And I think Spielberg is like we were talking about with Scorsese is another director where I I often am impressed with his accomplishments and admire the filmmaking, but I I don't always enjoy the films. And that's kind well, of the way that I felt about this movie. You know, like Schindler's List is a masterpiece, but it's extremely difficult to sit through and watch. And it's a hard subject matter. And, you know, so I get what you're saying. I think that's a little different. But uh, Dave, what about you? Any favorite Spielberg movies? I would also go with Jurassic Park. Uh, There's plenty of other ones too, but that is kind of, I think, the perfect blockbuster. Yeah, 
that that I uh, I definitely feel that way about that movie. And and it's it's had all the crappy sequels, and so I think you forget how great that original is. When you guys right. watched it, did you hold on to your butts? Clever girl, <laughs> right? It has those great lines, and it's funny, and it's majestic, and it's just it's just a great movie. So, Josh, out of this last decade, let's you know you probably have seen all these: uh, The Adventures of Tintin, Warhorse, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, The BFG, The Post, and Ready Player One. Yeah, a lot of those are not. Good. Yeah, kind um, of a, really not his best decade, huh? Yeah, I th- I think Bridge of Spies is actually underrated, and it's got a really good Tom Hanks performance, and it's effective for what it does. And even though I think right, Mark Rylance was either nominated for an Oscar or maybe even I think won he an Oscar won. for that. Yeah, yeah. So it's hard to say an Oscar-winning movie is underrated, but I think that is a movie that maybe people don't remember as much. And and I like that movie. It's not big and flashy, but it's it's really good at its sort of modest ambitions. Yeah. All right. I mean, I know um, the post. Highly acclaimed. I personally thought Lincoln was one of the most boring movies that I've seen. So, oh, I like I like Lincoln actually, and of course, uh, and I like and I like the post too. Those are both. I mean, they're not like amazing, but I think they're solid pieces of historical storytelling. Well, that's good. That's good because one that's not is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, <laughs> which maybe made me wish they'd kill everyone in the movie and the franchise forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't hate that movie as much as some people, but I will say his Tintin movie is just. I didn't like that either. And aren't they doing a sequel of that? I mean, uh, they were supposed to when that was initially Near. announced. It was part of like a trilogy, and they were already working on the next one that Peter Jackson was supposed to direct, and it just never happened. So. I kind of hope it doesn't. I don't. I don't think that's what I want to see Peter Jackson doing next, anyway. Yeah. So uh, we we talked already about Richard Dreyfuss's career in our episode on the Goodbye Girl, but of course, important to reference Krippendorf's tribe again. <laughs> already done. Already done, yes. baby. I'm way yes. ahead of you, baby. <laughs> uh, Melinda Dillon. I mean, she was nominated for an Oscar here, and she had kind of a steady uh, character actor career. Nothing super big or flashy. And uh, as we mentioned in our previous episode. She's quite naked in Slapshot, <laughs> so good for her. We've given her back-to-back love two episodes yes. in a row. I've, I've never seen Francois Truffaut's The Man Who Loved Women. I know that was actually one of our potential options for our foreign film episode in this season, but he uh, he wrote that film during the production of this movie, so you can argue that that's, the, that's part of the legacy of this, is that, that Truffaut film. Yeah, that's amazing. Good for him for making good use of his time. And I, I noticed that uh, Devil's Tower, which of course is a real place, uh, increased its tourism visitation following this movie, which is not a surprise. Um, I don't know if anyone showed up there trying to find aliens, but it certainly has a striking visual presence that you could see people wanting to go check well, out in person. I read that at the campgrounds, the KOA campgrounds at Devil's Tower, they play this movie every night, mate. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Hey, Melinda Dillon, Josh. Yes. You can't mention Melinda Dillon without a Christmas story. Come on, man. Oh, yeah, that's true. A Christmas story is certainly beloved. And uh, I, I love that movie. Although it's 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 kind of been overexposed at this point. <laughs> but do you have any favorite uh, spoofs of this movie? We mentioned the UHF spoof. It's just been spoofed all over. Uh, South Park's done it a ton. Canadian bacon, you know, uh, Moonraker kind of messes with it even. Yeah, I mean, I love UHF. And I will say that 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 bit in UHF, like I saw UHF 
numerous times before I ever saw this movie. Same and here. I'm sure I'm sure I had no idea what was going on in that bit in UHF for many years. And and I still found it funny. But yeah, and I think that's one of the things with these iconic classic movies is that if you've seen parodies of them, and, and that goes for something like The Godfather or Casablanca or whatever, when you get to the iconic moments that have been parodied, and if you've seen parodies so many times before right. you've seen the actual movie, it, it kind of loses some of its impact. So I think when 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 he says, you know, this means something, this is important, all I can think of is Weird Al saying that. <laughs> Josh, I have to say one. Uh, so John Williams did win a gra- two Grammys in 1979 for a film score and instrumental composition for this movie. It's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. And one thing I, Josh, as you know, I would have to mention is when Steven Spielberg was a guest on Inside the Actors Studio James Lipton, as only James Lipton could do, uh, said this to him, which I thought was really insightful. He goes, uh, your father was a computer engineer. Your mother was a concert pianist. And when the spaceship lands, they make music together on the computer. So (laughs) I think, you know, it's great that he put these connections together to his personal life. Yeah, I mean, this is clearly a personal movie. I mean, this might even be Spielberg's most personal movie in a weird way, even though it's this big alien story, you know? Yeah, you could Um, be right there. A couple other things. Uh, Michael Kahn, the editor of this movie, this was his first collaboration with Spielberg, and he went on to edit every single Spielberg movie up to and including West Side Story. So that's quite a collaboration that began here. And we mentioned a bit D- Douglas Trumbull, who is a like major, major figure in the world of special effects and did, it, weirdly, like did the effects for only a handful of really important movies and kind of has become a weird, almost recluse in his later years where he just spends all his time tinkering with different technological innovations that no one really pays attention to. But he's a fascinating figure, Douglas. He's kind of like the George Lucas of special effects in a way. Right, right, where he made these these big splashes and then just kind of went off into his own little world. So anything else on the legacy of this movie you want to mention, Jason? I think we covered it, Josh. I mean, you know, we're pretty thorough. I'm going to give us um, four out of five tones on this episode. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, so, gen- so generous of you. So that is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Deserves to be in outer space somewhere. Uh, uh, AwesomeMovieYear.com. Pretty good. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. You can find me at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, at JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook, and on Twitter at SignalBleed. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, if I may, uh, in that Lipton interview, talked about making music on the computer. I just put out a new album that I made on the computer. So check out David Rosen. It's available on iTunes, Amazon, wherever. You, you sir, are a delight. (laughs) (laughs) And, And of course, of course, you can check out the Patreon, the By David Rosen Patreon for more of Dave's music, as well as bonus content. From Piecing It Together and All Rice, No Beans. And from us, we have a bit of a bonus coming up related to this episode. Jason, do you want to tell us what that is? Yeah, Josh, you know, we really like to 
weave a tapestry throughout a season. And this season wouldn't be complete unless we covered one of the other iconic films of 1977, Saturday Night Fever, John Travolta. Let's get it, baby. Disco, disco, boogie, woogie, woogie. So please check out our Patreon and you can hear that bonus episode. And in the meantime, what is on our next episode? We're closing out 1977. It's our epilogue. We look back on what we covered, what we didn't cover, and we'll announce what the next season is. So tune in next time for our 1977 epilogue. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.